listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, as always. Thanks for being here. ESPN 30 for 30 has a new podcast that looks at the career of legendary gymnastics coaches and administrators, Bella and Marta Caroli. Heavy Metals explores how the married couple who made Team USA the team to beat for Olympic gold year after year, how they also put extreme pressure on athletes and arguably created a culture of abuse and dehumanization. The podcast includes shocking revelations about the ways in which the Corollis embraced and possibly turned a blind eye to sports doctor Larry Nasser as he sexually abused hundreds of victims. Here's a clip from the trailer for Heavy Metals. Critics claim Caroli is too demanding, too forceful, that the ends too often fail to justify the means. Some people see him as a very ruthless coach who's too tough on the kids. But you know what he is? A winner. Everywhere he's been, he is a winner. We gave up our childhood to represent the United States of America. What Coach Bella and Marta Caroli brought to the sport. Bella Caroli, hear him? They came to the United States as immigrants. They created one of the greatest Olympic dynasties in any sport. Judges, put your pencils down. That is an Olympic gold medal winning moment. As long as you win, who's going to challenge you? Everything that they supposedly worked for, they did it on the sacrifice of little girls' bodies, minds, their mental health, their emotional well-being. If you're going to subscribe to a win-at-all-cost mentality, will you take the responsibility of the collateral damage? Here to talk about heavy metals is host and reporter, reporter Alyssa Ronig. Alyssa, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. And also with us is ESPN senior writer, Bonnie Ford. Bonnie, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having us. So let's start here. I am old enough to remember Bella Caroli in the context of Mary Lou Retton. And that was, for me, sort of the introduction to the idea of this powerhouse uh, gymnast uh, coach that uh, was was powering uh, USA Olympics, but I don't know that everybody else uh, is either old enough or pays enough attention to the Olympics to really know who Bella and Marta Caroli are. So let's start there. Talk about who they are and what their status is in USA Olympic gymnastics. Alyssa, I'll start with you. So who they are, you know, Bell and Marta Caroli were, you know, in 1976, famously the Romanian coaches of Nadia Comaneci in the 76 Olympic team. She famously scored the, the first perfect 10 um, at the Olympics and launched Bella and Nadia into international fame. And in 1981, uh, they defected along with their choreographer to the United States and within three years had, you know, a gym full of incredible talent, including Mary Lou Retton who then did the same thing, scored a 10 and won the Olympic all around and proved, you know, not only that Bella could do it again, but that he could do it here in the United States. And so for many years, he became the most famous coach in the sport, the face of the sport. 
And in 2001, his wife then became that person um, after a very short attempt at having Bella run the U.S. program, not just their own gym in Houston. Um, Marta then took over the program and for 15 years was what they called the national team coordinator. So they were no longer personally coaching gymnasts day in and day out, but they were overseeing the entire program. And even though it was Marta's job and a lot of the gymnasts in the, you know, in the 2000s did not have much of a relationship with Bella. He still had a huge relationship with USA Gymnastics and with the media uh, and with the public. And so was still very much involved in the program. And then in 2016, uh, just a month before the Indianapolis Star story broke about Larry Nasser, Marta stepped down um, and retired from the program. Hmm. Uh, that's a 40-year span uh it's incredible and i think it's probably fair to say that in a lot of ways this is a name and an approach that defines gymnastics in the united states is that right bonnie it came to for a while yes and i i do want to say this may sound like semantics but it's it's not uh, the Carolis did not invent abusive culture in gymnastics. Mm. That culture was present here. Uh, it was present in other countries. Uh, in fact, with the incredible outpouring of testimony from gymnasts from all over the world in the last few weeks, we have seen that this is something that is endemic in the sport. However, uh, when the Carolis came to the United States, initially they were not embraced by the gymnastics community here, which was very competitive. But when Mary Lou Retton, and I'm also old enough to remember that, Steve, just <laughs> to, be, uh, to own that, right. um, then, you know, his there, uh, but primarily Bella's because he was the front man, uh, his techniques and in particular the rigorous high-volume training approach that the Corollis had uh, utilized in Romania and and brought with them to the United States, was seen as the way to create champions. And so whatever roots of abusive culture existed here in the United States when they arrived, their success uh, and their influence over other coaches helped cement that. Uh, Talk about the ways that the Corelli's background in Soviet-style gymnastics training influenced the culture of gymnastics here in the United States. Is that where all of this comes from? Is it the sort of Eastern approach to to training young people uh, sort of at the root of all of this, Alyssa? Yes and no. I mean, in some respects, Bella was creating his style of coaching in Romania in real time. You know, not a lot of countries were taking very young gymnasts specifically and and believing you could teach them the kind of high-level elite gymnastics that was being done at the Olympics. That started to show up in Russia in the in the early 70s. Um, but what Bella Caroli and Marta Caroli were doing in Romania, um, you know, certainly they they transferred that here to the United States when they when they came here. They wanted younger, smaller, lighter gymnasts. But really I, I think the biggest influence was the idea of a centralized training center. That was something that Bella pushed for immediately. You know, here in the United States, we had disparate gyms. 
um, each, you know, these, we have a capitalist system. And so coaches were not sharing information. Gymnasts were being trained, you know, on different sides of the country. And he really wanted to bring everyone together in one place, share information and train them, you know, under truly his watch. And by 2000, that's exactly what was happening when we created a, a national training center at he and his wife's home uh, at their ranch in uh, just outside of Houston, Texas. Mm. Um, it was not a centralized system. The kids were not brought there to live like they were in Romania, but it was a semi-centralized system where they were, you know, basically forced to travel to this training camp four or five days a month, every month for, you know, some of them, Jordan Weber told us 10, 11 years of her life. And let's talk then about how this culture leads directly uh, to the abuse of American gymnasts over a number of years. Uh, Bonnie, you said earlier, the Crowleys didn't invent that culture, but certainly in the podcast, the suggestion is that uh, it thrived uh, under their leadership and it became just part of uh, the infrastructure of USA Gymnastics. I think the core idea here is that when you have young, very young athletes coming into a system, understanding that there's only one road to become an Olympian and they're being trained by and large, I don't want to paint all coaches with the same brush, but being trained by and large by coaches who are um, all about numbers and train through pain, don't complain, um, you know, make yourself into sort of a functioning um, robot, Mm. then you combine that with the fact that young girls uh, are not always going to recognize what sexual abuse is. They're already in a silenced mode. um, And you put a predator into that, into that environment, and it is going to be fertile ground. So um, as we've said many times um, in interviews, and and as a lot of the tremendous reporting about the Nasser case uh, has stated and restated and restated, Larry Nasser was a great con man, and he conned a lot of people. Uh, He conned entire families into thinking he was the good guy in the USA Gymnastics structure because he was kind um, on the surface. He was compassionate. He was, he snuck them candy. Um, He was the go-to guy uh, at the ranch when, when the gymnasts were in their rooms alone at night. If they had a problem, they were supposed to call him. So the, the Carolis um, at the end of all this uh, prosecutors did not find any evidence, direct evidence uh, to charge them. Um, some of the survivors and their families have great issue with that. But what the survivors and their families have said consistently is that they feel that the Carolis, um were not held sufficiently accountable, have not admitted uh, their role and their responsibility in the abuse that took place on their own property uh, and also the abuse that took place on the road at competitions in these girls' and women's hotel rooms. Mm where uh, a male doctor was allowed to treat them um, unsupervised uh, in their lodgings. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, the last episode of the podcast is titled 
the unraveling and it ties Caroli's downfall in USA Gymnastics to the revelations about Larry Nassar's abuse. Let's listen to a clip from that episode. How much do you think they knew? <sighs> oh, it's that's the hardest question because I can't say 100% they knew exactly what Larry was doing, but I don't think they were doing their job in asking any questions about what he was doing. I think that they're hugely responsible, but I don't think that they think that they're responsible. I think they believe their job was to come in and create a system that produced results. Um, I think they took that very literally. This training environment that they built this environment that that created was the only reason why Larry was able to exist and to sexually abuse so many people. Because we like essentially lived in fear at those camps and could not communicate anything. I don't even really care if she knew or not because she was the one who thought it was okay for him to be alone in a room with us at any time of the night to treat us and she just like didn't care so maybe she knew maybe she didn't i don't care she put us in harm's way by allowing that to happen now larry nasser is a name that is very familiar to us here in the state of michigan and in southeast michigan uh he the the things that he did at uh, as part of the athletic program at michigan state university have caused all kinds of trauma to, to young women, but also all kinds of trouble to the university itself. Uh, one of the things that's interesting in the podcast, though, is that there seems to be a pretty wide range of opinions from athletes on the Corollis and whether their tactics were appropriate. We heard that uh, in the clip. Uh, Mary Lou Retton seems to have positive things to say about her experience being coached by Bella Caroli. And that seems at odds and hard to reconcile, perhaps, with this uh, uh, with this connection that uh, they had to, to to Larry Nasser. Now I know there's uh, you know a, a, a wide span of time between Mary Lou Retton and when Larry Nasser becomes part of uh, of the gymnastics program. Um, but talk about those different takes that the athletes have about how responsible the Corollis were for this, Alyssa? So there, you know, what we found was there were, there are a lot of factors that determine and determined in real time how an athlete perceived their time while they were training with the Corollis and perceive their time looking back on it, reflecting now as adults. Their personality had a lot to do with it. Um, their parental support, their goals, how close they came to achieving those goals, the filters they placed upon those memories as they became adults, you know, whether that was becoming a coach themselves or, or a parent, um, you know, we had athletes who had very different opinions of the Crowleys when they left their time with them than they do today. You know, we walked into interviews multiple times sort of believing we knew where this athlete stands um, and being very surprised by, 
you know, how that has changed. And so there's just so many things that go into, um, the stories that athletes tell about their time with Bella and Marta and how they feel about Bella and Marta, you know, Bella seemed to have a real ability to connect with some of his gymnasts and I, and, and make them feel truly, you know, like he cared about them. He loved them when he was giving him those, them, those big bear hugs and, you know, the woohoo out on the floor that he <laughs> truly meant it. And that, you know, that softened their experience and the way they looked at their experience in the gym when he was incredibly tough. Uh, Marta didn't seem to have that ability. So we found fewer gymnasts who had those um, sort of warm, fuzzy memories about their time with Marta. And, you know, some of those gymnasts back then as well, like you said, um, Mary Lou and, you know, Phoebe Mills, some of the gymnasts we interviewed from the 80s, they never met Larry Nasser. Mm. Um, at, at, during their gymnastics career. So it's hard for them, I think, to believe that the couple that they knew, the couple that coached them, the couple they believed truly had their best interests at heart could have possibly known what he was doing. The gymnasts who were abused by Larry Nasser, like you heard in the clip, some believe they knew, some don't know, but most of them don't. That's not the question they ask. They ask the question of were they responsible and should they be held accountable? for what he did and for what they themselves did in the program that they oversaw. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we want to continue our conversation with Alyssa Roenig and Bonnie Ford, hosts and reporters of the ESPN 30 for 30 new podcast, Heavy Metals. We also want to hear from you. What do you think of the way young athletes are treated, especially in Olympic sports featuring younger athletes such as uh, gymnasts? What protections should be in place for those athletes? And do you see parallels between this and sports such as college football or basketball? We have another scandal brewing at the University of Michigan with another doctor interacting with uh, young athletes. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You've heard us talking about WDET's financial situation. Here's an update from WDET General Manager, Mary Zatina. The cost to run WDET this fiscal year is $4.6 million. As of now, there's still $1.7 million left to raise before the fiscal year ends September 30th. 250 people stepped up to support WDET for the very first time during this crisis. And I'm asking all of you who have not given a gift of support yet to give your first gift now. Please know that your support is always deeply appreciated and is even more critical now. If you've never supported WDET before and you can afford to make a gift for those who cannot, I hope you will make a gift and encourage your friends and family to join Team DET. Now is the time to support WDET. Give online at WDET.org. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. I'm talking with Alyssa Roenig, who is a host and reporter for ESPN 30 for 30's new podcast, Heavy Metals, 
Also with us is Bonnie Ford. She is an ESPN senior writer and co-reported Heavy Metals. Uh, Heavy Metals is about the culture created in USA Olympic gymnastics by longtime coaches Bella and Marta Caroli. Uh, the podcast takes a look at how that culture affected the young women who were part of it and also how it connected to Larry Nasser, a name that we are very familiar with here in Detroit and Michigan as a doctor who abused hundreds and hundreds of young women. Uh, I want to start this segment by playing a clip from the podcast that talks about a really iconic moment in USA Olympic gymnastics. This is when gymnast Carrie Strug secures a gold medal for the U.S. team after injuring herself on a previous vault. And it's the moment that a lot of people remember in which her coach, Bella Caroli, carries her onto the floor for the medal ceremony. Let's take a listen. Marta Caroli and a female trainer helped carry off the competition floor, where 33-year-old Larry Nasser was waiting. He had just been appointed the national medical coordinator for USA Gymnastics. And it was honestly just chaos at that point. There's people throwing, you know, flowers at us. And I remember everybody being excited behind the curtain as we were, you know, preparing to march out for the award ceremony. The U.S. team was about to walk out onto the Olympic podium. But Carrie was still in a room behind the competition area getting medical attention. Bella came in screaming, they're going to do the award ceremony. You got to come. You got to come. Geza Pozar was one of the few people allowed backstage. He had choreographed the floor routines for Carrie and every member of the Magnificent Seven. Bella comes in, picking up Carrie like that and taking her out. I was laying on a, like, stretcher, and he just came in and scooped me up, and then we went down to the floor, and the girls were already lined up. Bella carried his star gymnast to the podium, beaming the whole time. Carrie looked both stoic and helpless. She had tears in her eyes and was in obvious pain. Her left leg, wrapped in a temporary cast, stuck out at an awkward angle. And I remember Bella whispering to me, this is your moment, enjoy it, Carrie. Enjoy it very much. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. You deserve it. You deserve it. Because I was the type of kid who had a hard time just letting go of everything else and being in the moment, and he knew that. The TV audience saw a paternal gesture, a coach caring for his injured champion. Bella knew what he was doing. That picture was all over in every single newspaper and the next day in the morning. That picture was millions of dollars. Tomorrow, Carrie Strong will be on the cover of every newspaper in the world. That was natural Bella, you know. He wanted to be the one to get recognition before the athletes got recognition. So as you hear in the clip there, this becomes this moment that people define Bella Caroli by, and it, it defines him uh, really as this powerful, positive, and inspirational coach. Um, but the podcast seems to talk about the sort of horrifying and opportunistic dimension of of what he's up to there. So I, I really wonder, Bonnie, how do you think we should view this moment, looking back on it 24 years later? Well, like so many moments, um, 
that we view through the, the filter of a broadcast, it has a duality to it. And uh, the voice in, in that episode that I really appreciate, aside, of course, from Carrie herself, who we were very glad to sit down with, uh, was John Lopez, who was a reporter for the Houston Chronicle at the time, had covered the Crowleys extensively. And uh, he says, and, and I tend to agree with this, that that moment was uh, did have two sides to it, that, of course, no secret that Bella Crowley loved the cameras, um, loved to draw attention to himself. Um, John calls him in the podcast, uh, says that he has a streak of P.T. Barnum in him, calls him a carnival barker. Mm. Um, And yet he did care for Carrie. Uh, Clearly, you know, 25 years later, uh, Carrie still feels that. Uh, Carrie feels that there was... Um, compassion in that gesture. And there you have it. You know, that's, that's why so many of the athletes that we spoke to from the 80s and the 90s have complicated feelings about their time with Bella Caroli. Hmm. Hmm. So, uh, Alyssa, I wonder what you think has changed or what hasn't changed since these revelations became public about Nasser and his connection to the Corollis and his connection to this culture that they created? Well, I I think the main thing that's changed is our awareness, not only that this was going on, but that this sport was ripe for, you know, we've had several athletes and parents say, you know, Nasser might've been the inevitable end to this story. And so I think, I don't think enough has changed as far as um, shifting the culture, shifting our focus on winning. I, I, I think that we, hopefully as journalists, as administrators, as coaches holding each other accountable, as athletes and parents holding coaches accountable, that, that awareness is changing the way we view every moment that we interact with this sport. Mm. Um, you know, we've seen in the past couple of weeks or a couple of months, not only gymnasts all over the world speak out about their own coaches, horrifying revelations in countries that I don't think if we were to sit and name the countries we thought had real problems, we would have listed a month ago, but also coaches in the United States, coaches who were, who were connected to MARTA's national team over the past 10 years also being suspended from the sport. So I think looking at Larry Nasser not as the problem who's now been gone and looking at Marta and Bella as the problem who are now gone and believing this sport is cleaned up and it's fixed and we can all move on, but looking at them as um, symptoms of a greater problem within the sport is incredibly important mm. moving forward. Yeah. Uh, and do you think that... Uh that young women today in the sport are having a fundamentally different experience than what some of the the young women you guys talk to are, are having, Alyssa? In some respects, yes. I mean, it, if, if you're, if you're asking about, you know, the athletes at the very, very top at, and there's only very few who experienced, you know, Marta Caroli's regime and now we're experiencing Tom Forster's who um, there were two uh, coaches who replaced Marta. He's Tom's been uh, 
now for almost four years, mm. the national team coordinator. I was at, um, I've been at several competitions since 2016 and most recently at world championships in Stuttgart, Germany in October. And there are certainly changes, you know, and we sat with Simone Biles for this podcast. Um, she's talked about some of the changes, you know, they no longer obviously train at the ranch. They're training now at a, at a gym in Indianapolis. There is some um, transparency. There is much more involvement of the parents. Um, as media, there's there's more access. Um, you know, it's small things. I saw the, the women on our team attend a men's event. Mm -hmm. I saw them cheering one another on. I mean, those were things that were not tolerated under Marta's uh, program. And so there are certainly differences, but I don't think you can change an entire culture overnight. Certainly knowing that coaches and, you know, coaches who were um, part of the 2016 Olympic program were, you know, Lori Hernandez's coach was suspended for eight years just a month ago. Um, and she was still, you know, she was still at the national team training camps up until, you know, they shut down after February. So, you know, this is still insidious in this sport. Mm. So I, I think that they're starting, but there's an awareness among the gymnasts that there is another way. I think that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. So many of the gymnasts told us, we just believe there was one way to win. We were told there was one way to win. And we were, you know, militant soldiers who were going to do it. Yeah. Okay, Alyssa Rona again, Bonnie Ford. It's really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you. And you can check out Heavy Metals wherever you download podcasts. Also want to give a shout out to former Detroit Today associate producer Gus Navarro, who helped produce this podcast for ESPN 30 for 30, where he now works. That's going to do it for us today. I will be back on Monday when we're going to talk about the new Meyer going up on Detroit's east side and what it represents, as well as how teachers and administrators are trying to cope with the uncertainty of school coming back in the fall. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.